Our vision here at the James is to be the best and to provide top-notch quality care for the people of Columbus and the surrounding area in Central Ohio and all of Ohio and even even more. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Matthew Kalady. Matt is a world-class colorectal surgeon and researcher, and he is the director of the James Division of Colon and Rectal Surgery and one of the leaders of the new state-of-the-art James Colorectal Cancer Center that will open soon. We'll talk about Matt's background, some of the recent advances in treating patients with colon and rectal cancer, and how the new James Colorectal Cancer Center, when it opens, will be a real game changer for patients. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. So we had the opportunity to talk before, and I I learned a little bit about your background, which is really interesting. You're from Allentown, which is interesting because I used to work for the Allentown Morning Call newspaper, but our our paths never crossed. But tell tell me a little bit about growing up and what got you into medicine and eventually to specialize in colorectal cancer. Sure. So as you said, I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is a great place. Uh, I still have family back there. Um, I was the youngest of four children. All of us were very, very active. We, We played sports very competitively and did a lot of different things. And actually, my interest in medicine kind of rolled out of sports a little bit. So I did really well in school. I liked math and science, um, and I was athletic at the time. And so, oh, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, he's being modest. You were athletic. You were the starting quarterback on the football team, the starting point guard on a team that won a state championship, and very good in baseball. The, that's true. It was a long time ago, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> so, but through my experience with sports, I got to know some of the orthopedic surgeons, uh, particularly our football trainers. Um, and learn to them and talk to them about, you know, careers in medicine, because it seemed to me to be able to take my love of science and love of, of math and science and put that together with my love of sports. And my idea was to kind of go to college and then eventually med school to be an orthopedic surgeon. For a sports team or just, or as part of it, you I, would be yeah, like... Yeah, I, I didn't know at the time. It was, I was going to go into orthopedics because I thought that was an interesting field to be into and I could kind of merge my interests. You weren't going to be the team doctor for the Eagles. That would have been a good job. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what happened when you got to, to med school? So, you know, as you know, life always takes a lot of different turns. Um, I still was enjoyed with orthopedics, but that was all I knew at the time. I went through medical school. We do rotations after we do our basic science work for the first two years. Then we get into different clinical rotations. I still knew I wanted to do surgery. Um, that was the, the idea of just doing something active trying to make an impact and make an immediate effect and treatment effect right off the bat um, was something I like to do. And so I knew I was going to do some sort of surgery, and I still kind of thought of orthopedics, but I was exposed to a lot of the other different kinds of surgery too. Um, and from there, I decided I wanted to go into general surgery instead of orthopedics. So general surgery back then is a lot different than it is now, right? Because back then there weren't as many specialties. There may not even have been a colorectal uh, surgery specialty. Yeah, so general surgery can mean a lot of different things, even today. Um, there, in the older times, I'm not that old, but in the <laughs> older times, general surgeons did everything. They did, they did an operation on the chest, they did in the belly. Some of them even delivered babies in certain rural areas. So general surgery was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. You could do a lot of those things. Which appealed to you. Absolutely. Um, and then within that, though, and specialties existed, and actually the field of colorectal surgery is one of the oldest board specialties in the country, but it wasn't always prevalent at all the different institutions we were at. 
So within general surgery, I wasn't sure what I was going to do yet, but I had an interest in cancer at the time, an academic interest in cancer, and thought when I do general surgery and then maybe from fellowship there, I might do a surgical oncology fellowship, which is specializing operating only on cancer. As I got into my residency, which was seven-year residency, uh, including two years of research during that time, our first, and I was at Duke, which is a fantastic general surgery program, we're very strong surgeons and great leaders in the country with, with a lot of the work they did do. We did not have a colorectal trained surgeon, um, as some of the fellowship trained things were, uh, fellowship trained surgeons were starting to come in to different places. And during my fellowship about halfway, th- or during my residency about halfway through, a colorectal surgery trained surgeon came in. And I started working with him through different rotations and in the operating room and then his energy and, and what the field could do just became kind of contagious for me. And then I kind of never looked back, and that's the way I went. Wow. So what year was this about? Probably early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. And colorectal surgery, uh, let's see how, how close I can come. When you detect the cancer in the colon or the rectum, it's removing it. So you're removing a section and then somehow reconnecting it? Yep, I, I tell patients a lot it's like plumbing. So the colon is just a long tube, and there's a cancer or a mass in there that's causing the problems. So we take out good healthy tissue on either end of the tube or either end of the where the mass is so that we have good margins on it. But then also we know that cancer spreads first, usually to the lymph nodes that drain that area. So if you think about the colon being a circle or, or kind of a, a big pie, you take a wedge out. So you take out the periphery of where the colon is, and then that where everything drains kind of towards the middle of your body, where the lymph nodes and the fat oh. drains. So you take out that wedge, because we know that if we going to, if cancer goes somewhere else, it goes to lymph nodes, we want to drain the lymph nodes to drain that area. So it's not just taking out that one spot, it's taking out good side, good portions on either side of the tumor, and then all the lymph nodes that drain that too, and then finding the two good ends and putting it back together again, like plumbing. Oh, see, I th- that makes sense, because it's almost like a pie, and then also a hose, right? Because... Yeah, it's a way of thinking. I think about a hose on the end, on the perimeter of the pie. Yeah, but <laughs> is the, the tube, but, and on the in the center of that is all where all the other tissues live. But the pie analogy is, shows you how everything's all connected, yeah. and, and, and okay, or the other, I say spokes on a wheel sometimes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, and, and you make it sound simple, but these are some very very complicated long uh, surgeries that require a lot of skill. They can be. Yeah, depending on where the tumor is located and depending on the, the patient's body habitus and what they've had done before, things don't always kind of look like they're supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they can be challenging sometimes. So I do know that you went to the Cleveland Clinic where you rose to the top in your field. Well, I, I did a colorectal surgery fellowship. So after leaving residency, you apply to do specialized training after that. Uh, colorectal surgery is a one-year fellowship, and I went to the Cleveland Clinic, which was the top or probably one of the top, if not the top, collectible training programs. Uh, went there, learned from some of the best in the country and in the world at that place, and then was lucky enough to stay on. They offered me a job out of fellowship to stay there. Um, and I stayed there and did a broad range of things and within colorectal, which is a, a broad field, both cancer and non-cancer. And then over time, between my research and kind of my clinical practice, it really honed down more on um, colorectal cancer and hereditary cancer syndromes. Oh, so let's, if you can briefly, I I know this will be hard because you do so much research and it's really interesting. Fill us in. What is sort of the the overview of of your research? And as you mentioned, it it does have to do with um, genetics and um, mutations. Sure. So 
the broad overarching view of my lab is that I, I try to look at the genetics of colorectal cancer and how they impact tumors developing and then how they impact response to treatments. From the genetic side, there's, there's genetic changes that happen in the tumor itself. So what's actually happening that starts a tumor to grow or makes it progress or makes it invade um, to what might be in your blood that you're born with, an, or not in your blood, but every single cell in your body, there's hereditary predisposition syndromes where you might be born with a mutation that makes you more prone to getting a cancer. So we, we look at that from both ways. In terms of some of the hereditary things, we try to look at what the different mutations are and what those patients, we say, what we call a phenotype, or what they look like. So if you have a certain mutation, at what age do you get cancer? Do you get multiple polyps before you get cancer? Do you get cancer of your colon and your uterus? Um, and are there different ways that we can kind of help personalize patient surveillance or personalize patient's care based on some of those hereditary mutations? So does that mean by determining the type of genetic changes, you can answer all those questions and then you'll, you can screen better to catch things earlier? That, that's the idea. So we know that people with, with Lynch syndrome, which is one of the hereditary syndromes, there are four main genes that, that are causative of, of the syndrome. Depending on what gene you have and where that mutation is in that gene too, people may behave a little bit differently. So we try to personalize things a little bit more in terms of what treatments they get, what surveillance they get. Oh, see, I didn't know that, I, with, that there were four genetic mutations within Lynch syndrome and each one acts differently in the body. You're now getting to the point where you've identified the four and can tell their behavior and treat them appropriately. Right, so the, the four have been identified outside of our work. They've been known for about right, right. 10, 20 years almost now. Um, but your work is, in, is taking it to that next step and what does that right. mean now that we've identified them? Yeah, and, so, and some of it is, is the clinical side of things too. So the, the genes are, I'll, I'll take a step back and say, the body has a spell check mechanism. So as your cells divide, they've got to replicate themselves, basically make it an exact copy of what, when the cells split, you make two exact same copies. And it takes a lot of work and it's a little complex thing to do that because your entire like DNA code has to be matched exactly. When that happens, the errors happen. And there's a spell check mechanism that goes behind that code and says, this is wrong. I'm going to take out the wrong part and put the right part back in. Your immune system. Um, no, it's, it's called DNA repair system. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit different. But the DNA repair genes and DNA repair proteins are the things that are mutated in Lynch syndrome. Oh. So the spell check mechanism doesn't work. And everybody's born with two copies of that spell checker. So if you're born without one of them, the one works for a little while. But then eventually it kind of burns out and then you don't have it. So then you don't have any spell checker. And then the cells, when the cells do become abnormal, they can't be fixed. And then those replicate and grow. And then they grow and grow and change. And that's eventually how these Lynch syndrome-based cancers happen. The same thing can happen in as regular sporadic or like not associated with hereditary syndrome. But you lose one copy, maybe when you're 40. You lose another copy when you're 60. And then you get cancer when you're 70 or 80. In this situation, you're born without one. You might lose one when you're 20 and you start getting cancer in your 30s. So that's kind of how a lot of that happens within some of the hereditary syndromes. Wow, I've never heard it explained that way, and that really makes sense. And I'm just thinking, as someone who writes a lot, if I didn't have spell check, yeah. the number of mistakes I would make, and that's yeah. the same thing going on in your body. Right. Wow. So what we've done, at least for at, at Ohio State, even before I got here, a lot of the people had done some great studies looking at statewide study where all of the colorectal cancers from the whole state of Ohio in different places were brought, not the patients, but their tumors were brought 
down to Ohio State, and they did testing on them to see what genes were there or not. And they found that about 3% of all colorectal cancers actually are responsible or, or caused by Lynch syndrome. So that's some of the great work that's been done here at the James to do that. What we're also doing now is saying, okay, we have the, all these people, not just we know what their genes are, but what do they look like clinically? And are there different things that we can do? Some of the research is going on here as well as around the rest of the world is to look at those four different genes. And there's one gene in particular where it doesn't seem to be as severe. So you might get cancer at a later age. Um, you don't get as, it's not as, as high a chance to get cancer. So those people, maybe we don't need to survey them so quickly or at a shorter interval. So that's different ways of just trying to personalize things based on some of the genetics and things that we're learning. Wow. So because of these programs you just described, and I believe one of them was, was uh, paid for by Pelotonia. Exactly. Uh, you got to know people here at Ohio State, mm -hmm. geneticists, colorectal yeah. cancer surgeons. So when there was an opening here, from what I understand, the word went out that, that you were like the top choice and you were recruited and, and came here about two years ago. What made you decide to leave a really good hospital doing really good work to come here? So I, I had a great career at the Cleveland Clinic. I was there for about 15 years. I had great colleagues and we did a lot of really good things. Um, it was an opportunity for a bit of a change uh, in my life. It was great to come down here to be able to be a leader um, of a program and also take some of the academic stuff that's really going on, really exciting clinical research and basic science that's going on at the James and that what we call translational research, meaning taking what we learn in the lab and translating that into real clinical care. Uh, there's a very, very strong program at the James for that, and that was one of the things that attracted me to come down here. And that's what you were just describing, and it sounds like you're passionate about that trans translational care. Absolutely. And the, the one thing that outside of Lynch syndrome that I, I wanted to bring up is what is very, very exciting for me in the lab. So people with, with rectal cancer, they get treated with radiation usually before surgery. And depending on how, what kind of response they get determines what their outcome is. So if you have a good response, you have a, a tendency to have a much better survival. If you don't have a good response, you don't do as well. And there's actually people who have a complete response that when we take out the, the rectum, there's no tumor. We can't see it under a microscope or anything. And those people actually do really, really well. So it kind of begs the question of, do we even need to operate on those people at all? something called active surveillance or watch and wait is, is within our world what we call it. So we know that people respond very differently to, to treatment, and but we don't know why. So one of the goals of my lab is to figure out how do you predict who's going to respond and not, and then can you actually make someone respond better by intervening, seeing what changes happen in the tumor. So what we've done is we've taken biopsies of patients' tumors before they go into treatment. Rectal and then, cancer tumors. Rectal cancer and then analyze those. And in the lab, we're able to identify a couple proteins that seem to be predictive of who responds and who doesn't. But then also one of the exciting things is now we've, we've tested this in cell lines. We've created kind of experimental models in the lab. And if we can knock down this protein so it's not expressed as much based in the tumor, you can actually kill the tumors completely with radiation. So now we're working to try to develop, you know, how do we block this pathway? Are there novel drugs out there that we might be able to develop to give someone why they're getting radiation to actually make the radiation work more. And then those people will do better and maybe not even need surgery at all if we can actually eliminate the tumor from that. So that's some of the exciting things that I think are going on uh, in the field and, and particularly in my lab. Wow, that's fascinating. The way you can pinpoint the exact genetic mutation and proteins going on in the person's cancer and then have the perfect treatment for them. 
That's ideal. We're, we're not there yet. We're getting closer. But th- there are tons of tons of, there are hundreds of mutations that happen sometimes in tumors. Uh, but we know that in, you know, not everything works for everybody. But again, we're working towards that personalization of care. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Matt will fill us in on the colorectal cancer center, which is going to open soon. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Matt Clady, and we're talking about colorectal cancer and the new James Colorectal Cancer Center, which will be opening soon. So one of the trends I've noticed is these multidisciplinary centers, almost like an all-in-one center for someone who has colorectal cancer. This is a place you go. You can see everyone you need to see, hopefully in one day. So tell me how how that's going to work. So there's, I think most diseases now require the care of multiple people. And we need to break down some of the silos of you're a surgeon, you're a medical oncologist, you're a radiation oncologist, and think of it more of an approach of we're a colorectal cancer team. So we all treat colorectal cancer. So um, the idea of all this stuff is being very patient-focused and patient-facing forward. So everything revolves around the patient. So trying to get them in to see it, it, it is complex care. You need a lot of things. That once you have the diagnosis of cancer, a lot of things happen. We do what's called clinical staging, which means they get imaging of their chest and belly and pelvis. They'll get some labs drawn. Uh, the pathology that documents the cancer has to be read. So there's a lot that goes around it. And then once you have all that information, which requires some work and time, then you have to figure out, okay, who needs to be – who does that patient need to see to coordinate the care? And a lot of times it's two or three different specialties. So when we look at it, you don't need a surgeon, you don't need an oncologist, or you have the, you say you you have colorectal cancer and you need to see the team of people that are going to take care of you. And that's really where this focus is around, is having multidisciplinary teams, specialties. For colorectal cancer, that involves colorectal surgeons, it involves medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, uh, genetic counselors and geneticists, and then surgical oncologists for some of our metastatic disease as well. Um, we also meet closely with our, what we call a tumor board to discuss all these types of cases. And in that, we bring in our pathologists as well. Uh, we look at the, the tumors to make sure that we're doing the right things and some of the unique things that might be in that tumor. And then the radiologists who help us read and make sure that we have all the clinical staging done the right way. So everyone's kind of brought together within that realm. Um, so as you're saying this, it reminds me of your your sports days and i remember as i was doing a little research i saw a quote from your high school football coach that you were really good at reading and understanding game plans and that sounds like that's what you're doing now with this center that you as the quarterback of this multidisciplinary team are creating a game plan so what are the steps that you actually do in terms of uh, I don't know if it's bringing people in or training or team meetings. How do you sure. 
build what you just talked about? So everything starts with the vision, right? If, whether it's game plan or you're building a center or whatever it is, it all starts with the vision. And our vision here at the James is to be the best and to provide top-notch quality care for the people of Columbus and the surrounding area in central Ohio and all of Ohio and even, even more. What does that top-notch care look like? It means we get timely care, safe, effective, and top-of-the-line kind of treatments, both technologically and from a research side. So that's kind of the vision of what we have for the entire center. Everyone here within the different specialties all believe that, so that's not a hard sell. They all do this in, in their everyday lives, uh, and people are doing that for a while. I think where the challenge is is trying to get it a little bit more coordinated so that we can get people in timely. The other part of the vision is trying to think about if this was you or your wife or your mom or your dad or somebody who, is, who had the cancer and they were sitting in front of you. Would you want to be seen within a couple of days or would you want to be seen a month from now? And would you want to see everybody on the same day or within a few days so you have a plan? Or would you, you know, want to be, see somebody a week and then a week later and a week later? You want to get all that stuff done, right? right? You, you want to get into the system. You want to see everybody you're going to see and then have a plan and move forward with your game plan on, on that patient. Um, so having, having that game plan is, is mentally is great for the patient. Absolutely. And, and I know people, you could just tell when they get their diagnosis from when they come in to see you, that's, those are the uncertainty of those times. Those You're are tough times. <laughs> Emotion. And sometimes, you know, if I know I'm not going to see somebody for a few days, I might even call them sometimes ahead of time to say, Hey, I want to touch base. Here's what to expect going forward. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take care of you. That goes a long way, too, even just with, with, with that initial conversation. Even though you're not seeing them and you don't have a discrete plan yet, just that so they know what's happening goes a long way. Yeah, and from what I, I've heard from so many people that this type of collaboration you're talking about is an embedded culture at the James. So like you said, it, it wasn't hard to, to bring people aboard. Right. So everyone, I think, see, has the same vision. What we're doing, there's two different two main ways of trying to get everyone together on the same page to say that we're, we're communicating and that there's kind of a seamless transition between each aspect of patient's care. One is through the multidisciplinary clinics where we're trying to get people in in the same day or within a day or two of each other where everyone's in the same physical space or around where I've coordinated appointments. And then the other is through these multidisciplinary tumor boards that I talked about where we all sit together in a room and go through all the cases and say, based on this, this is what we think the best thing is for this patient. And it might be a new trial, it might be standard of care, it might be something that requires something outside the box because of this way they present. But that having all those minds together and different perspectives, but all working for the same goal is really, really important. Is that tumor board colorectal tumor board or broader? It, it's a colorectal specific tumor board. So there's multi-tumor boards around the James, Correct. each focusing on a specific right, type so. of cancer, and all the experts in that field gather. Right. So every every tumor specialty has their own tumor board. It would be just too overwhelming if every cancer was right. together. There's, there's so many cases so. here and so many things to do, you have to kind of yeah. separate it out. So you mentioned something along the lines of how you'd want your your mother, your father, your your brother, your spouse to be treated the right way, and that's important to you. And and only because I know that you've been through that in your family. Your family's had a couple cancer journeys that have uh, impacted you. So if you're okay talking about that, can you tell us a little about that? Sure. So un unfortunately, my dad passed away to appendiceal cancer. Um, he was one who felt fine, was great. He was, you know, late 70s, early 80s and, and felt pretty good and still pretty active playing with the kids. And um, he started having some problems and eventually was diagnosed with 
wasn't sure if it was colon cancer or what, but it turned out being appendiceal cancer. The appendix was just attached to the colon. Um, and he had, he had a tough journey. He had, he had something that most people don't survive. And he fought it for about two years. Um, but through that process, you know, I was able to spend a lot of time with him. He, I was fortunate to be able to help arrange some of his care because uh, this is some of the things that we do. So he got some of his original care in Cleveland when I was there. And then um, as I moved to Ohio State, he came here and got care at the James uh, by colleagues who I trust and, and did a great job and with him. he stayed with you? He, he actually lived, lived in Columbus with us for a little while. Yeah. I know it's tough. We went through the same thing with my mom to see one of your parents yeah. die. It, it also can, I don't know how to explain it, but it, it, you're, the spending the time with them at the end is so important. It was very special. Um, it, under the horrible circumstances, I was able to spend a lot of time with him, and my, my siblings were able to get back, and the kid, the, my, my kids, his grandkids, obviously. He has 12 grandchildren, wow. he, and my, he and my mom. Um, so those were really great times. Um, I, you know, obviously very sad, but what I learned from the process of seeing him go through this, um, and being on the other end of it, and that really drives a lot of how I'm trying to change processes and, and take care of patients going forward. I mean, every time I see a cancer patient, I, I think of him. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story and thank you for filling us in on the new colorectal cancer center and, and everything you do. All right. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And maybe sometime down the future, once your center's up and running and doing great work, you can come back and fill us in. I love the Philly and all the great stuff we've been doing. Okay. I'll, I'm going to mark that down. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.